0: Wonderkind research reveals exclusive insights from over a hundred leading B2C e-commerce brands, suggesting we are on the cusp of a golden age of marketing. Head to wonderkind.co forward slash future commerce to get the report.
1: Hello and welcome to Infinite Shelf, the human-centric retail podcast. I'm your host, Ingrid Milman cordy and sadly I'm not here with Orchid. Bummer. Um, you're going to have to settle with Philip and Brian.
0: <laughs>
2: <Congress>. Yet <laughs> again.
1: <you> <laughs> um, no, but really, honestly, you probably, Future Commerce is our, our parent podcast. You most likely have found me through them. Or if not, um, you should tune in to the Future Commerce podcast because it's pretty dope. If you like the whole e-commerce retail commerce situation how many times can i say commerce in one sentence (laughs) (laughs) anyway hey guys how's it going
3: pretty good how are you we we should be asking you yeah uh you have this has been like a wild ride of a season congrats on season three uh and congrats i I think like even just the co-host change the life change lots of change
1: lots of change i I thrive in change. I think that's why I work in commerce in general, but then mm-hmm. specifically e-commerce and digital. Like you have to be a glutton for change punishment. <laughs> <I> really, <laughs> like, that's just genuinely, I firmly believe that. Um, but yeah, lots of changes. So I was so grateful and blessed to have Orchid as a co-host this season. It was so much fun having these conversations with her. I hope you guys found them fun and interesting and Weird. Oh, yeah. We little, little, you know, where we, it was fun when we didn't, when we didn't agree. And then by the end of the, the <laughs> dialogue, we'd end up being like, yep, that's exactly how I feel. Okay, moving on. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I also, one thing that stood out to me in the season, and I'll just be really honest and say, like, I probably only got through half of the season because we're like up to five podcasts now at Future Commerce. And it's just, it's such a, uh, it's really tough staying like I'm a prolific content consumer. I don't know about you, Ingrid, but oh. uh, then being on top of your own content, too, and then making your own stuff and like checking your own stuff. It's it's a it's a tough balance to strike. Uh, but what I have noticed is a little bit of a freer, like more like punchier, hot, take or Ingrid, especially when you're next to your <laughs> kid. I, I see that happening. A lot of pop culture which is interesting because our thesis at future commerce has shifted in the last year too. And our, you know, our new outlook on, well, what is the future of commerce? I think six years ago, we would have said, well, rapid technology changes and ch- it's going to, it's going to shift the way that we engage in commerce. And that's true. Uh, I think today we would say uh, the way that culture finds itself online and offline is the future of commerce because culture is commerce. Yeah. And I saw that come through in this season of infinite shelf.
1: I'm so delighted to have you, to hear you say that um, because I think that, and this may be a lot of the theme of this season went along with sort of the progression of mine and orchids. Cause we're similar age, similar mm-hmm. sort of backgrounds um, we, you know, educational and, and, and work backgrounds. we, saw a mirror or like a parallel in what was happening in commerce alongside our own evolution as like people as employees as leaders. and I think that similar to how I was in the beginning of my career, I was like overly serious about mm. myself and about what I have to say and about uh, and and I always especially truly just being a female, being a blonde female, being someone who you know, Probably like I, I I don't I don't think I do anymore, but I did. Oh, I always looked a little bit younger than I actually am, and so I always had to like make up for it by like, being <laughs> so, like curious serious, you know.
3: You look <laughs> like you're 20. Give me a break. <laughs>
1: I I appreciate that. I think, you know, the other big change this season was having baby number two. Congratulations. Congratulations.
2: That's so wonderful.
1: Super quick, though. I think that is, you know, me being able to openly embrace the pop culture-ness, the softer side, the jokier side is very much like an evolution of the comfort that I have now within myself, Mm. both in a professional context as well as in like a public speaking context as, as being the host of the podcast. So that's cool. That's cool to hear. Have you noticed that? It's -hmm. funny what
2: we like put up as defense mechanisms. Like some people use humor as a defense mechanism and some people use seriousness and sometimes it flip-flops back and forth depending on where you're at. And it's really cool to see like, you just be able to enjoy yourself. And I, I feel like you've always been able to do that. And like, you're such a incredible thinker and, and, you know, you, you always come with such great thoughts, but to be able to do that in the context of jokes and, and lightheartedness is such a, such a cool thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I Orchid, Orchid definitely brought that out and I really appreciated that. Well, you know, I,
3: uh, we just had Orchid on a uh, learning, uh, product that we were building for future commerce. And so we're doing education and uh, you'll hear about that at some other point through other properties of future commerce. But uh, when Orchid came, it was the first time I actually saw Orchid in her element. I know Orchid as like through DTC Twitter, which is not the greatest light to put anyone in.
2: (laughs) (laughs) She talked about that Uh, on the podcast too. She's like, that's where I get
3: all my news. (laughs) Right. And, And I definitely you know, having seen, uh, I think even orchid on, on the infinite shelf podcast and not to talk about her in absentia, but you know, even seeing her on the infinite shelf podcast is she's bringing, I think her whole self, uh, interesting to see her in sort of the light of, I don't know. I'm going to teach you something now. And if, if I'm really honest, um, maybe you can talk to this in grid, but, uh, how much like learning and, insight gathering and analysis happens in the medium of podcast in 2023 I think what you want is a good hang where you come away feeling like it was time worth spent in a context of like I can relate this back to my work I can relate this back to my you know to the things I enjoy and and be part of the moment and there are cultural moments and a lot of them have revolve around media and i really appreciate that's what you guys seem to be doing this season is taking those moments or those like cultural moments and relating them back to work that's what people do just normally i think
1: definitely yeah i mean i think that is another like evolution of the podcast too right so we it's always been centered around the human centric podcast right so mm-hmm. we're like thinking about retail through the lens of humans and then You know, we did that in a much more, I would say, like intellectualized way in season two with Kiri Masters, where we went through like these natural human elements that make us human apart from animals and things like that. And so listen back to season two for some of the more like heady intellectual stuff. Um, And then I think season three with Orchid, it, it kind of came together in this way where we start talking about how everything is intertwined and everything is intermingled, like subcultures and cultures and how commerce creates that, sustains that, kills Mm -hmm. that, you know, like that whole life cycle. And they're so intertwined. And I think that is truly the core of retail planning, marketing, building a brand, like all of the things that we hope and wish to do through mm-hmm. like those the analysis and the media and all the things that we're trying to like learn but we're subconsciously thinking about those things and actually applying them much more practically through these conversations. So it is it's kind of like this balance between having the conversation around culture and pop culture and brands and things that we love and maybe a little fashion and skincare and like fun things like that thrown in. But at the same time, I think people who are attuned to retail pick up on really what we're saying that one or two layers down which is this is how you build a brand that people love and that to me mm-hmm. like when you peel back the layers of things that I want to listen to as a as a someone as a retail leader that is it right because I don't need to god forbid I, I'll never sit down and listen to someone like teaching me how to do that or whatever I want to hear the conversation through people who are comrades in the trenches with me of going through that and then applying it through this more realistic lens
2: and it's interesting you I think you covered that across a, a very broad set of topics too like you didn't yeah. ask me anything this time and got into yes how like how to build an incredible brand but also like different aspects of that like influencers are they still part of the of building a brand um, you know what would it look like if you were to rebuild Twiz or us today and you you were like oh it's just camp actually.
0: What I feel like is that we should buy Toys R Us, is what you're saying, because a lot of people are reimagining this. And I have a lot of fondness for Jeffrey the Giraffe. But a brand that I think has taken taken a cue and created this experiential but shoppable physical experience is this brand Camp. Are you familiar with them?
2: It was interesting to sort of see you hit that both from like a moment's angle, like when you covered the launch of Threads, um, but also from like a, you know, a like, counterfactual perspective. Um, it was a it was just such a broad set. And then bringing in producer Erica to. Yeah, give it that was, I was going to mention that. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was just like I feel like you guys covered so much ground. It was awesome.
1: We had a lot of fun and we we started out with a lot of structure and then we kind of let it like let our hearts sort of follow what what we wanted to talk about and so we'd show up and we'd be like we want, we were going to talk about this but actually this is what I'm really thinking and we really have to talk about it and that's just kind of how it it works. Well so what were what were some of your favorite moments or most surprising moments or or, or anything like you disagreed with like give me the juice what do you think?
3: Well if, if I could be so bold, um, I, I sort of wrote a, uh, a piece based on one of the episodes that was I was sort of struggling with what to write one day for the future commerce newsletter, because there was a lot to talk about. The main takeaway for me in amongst the like actual like good hang conversation was you both have been part of organizations that have been bought and sold um, acquisitions, integrations. And hearing your perspective on like the what not to do in an integration or what to buckle up for in an integration, I was able to bring my own perspective to it too. It's like, what are the four things that you, you know, that can ruin an integration uh, with your DTC brand? And that felt so, it felt very informative without being structured in, in like a, okay, I'm going to tell you something, Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you a structure broken down and analyze this for you, which is something I'd never listened to. Uh, but instead it was people relating their actual life experience. And man, it was like, I had a little bit of like PTSD listening to it because I've been through it <laughs>
1: yeah. and
3: part of the being through it realized in that I was like, oh wow, actually, do you know how many, uh, Th- of the like DTC roll-up acquisitions, hires we've already had in 2023 and how many more we have left to go because there's a lot of consolidation that this industry and in the e-commerce space in particular is going to go through as runways shorten, as capital can't be refreshed, like sources to capital being cut off, private equity chasing other fads, venture capital definitely moving away, right? These things are a reality, it felt very of the moment. And, um, anyway, that was, that was one that stuck out to me mostly because I like wrote about it and I I like to be (laughs) (laughs) self-referential.
2: Another great moment was the episode. Um, don't ignore your fans. I feel like one of the things we've been highly focused on and now I'm going to get self-referential as well is this idea of the multiplayer brand. Um, that's part of our visions report for this year. um, which everyone that's listening to this podcast should totally go check out visions.featurecommerce.com. It's amazing. And also go go get our new zine uh, at the same place. Um, it is very fun. It's called the multiplayer brand. And you you nailed it, that fans have more power and more influence than ever before. And those Mm. that ignore them are missing out on the largest opportunity that there is right now. Um, I wrote an article way back in 2020 about how power is wielded. And discourse is sort of the thing that I landed on engaging in that discourse and being in, in, you know, sort of harnessing discourse. And I feel like that is what engaging your fans actually is. It's Mm sharing ideas and having them be a part of what you're doing. And, um, you know, you did this sort of in the context of the conversation about Instapot and what happened there.
1: Instapot had this ability to like be this cult product and lead this whole band of fans that they earned and they just didn't. And that to me is like whoever, sorry, but whoever's like running marketing or community (laughs) management there, like you shit the bed.
2: And some people said that Instapot didn't have a brand. Well, it actually, it really did. It just got ripped off over and over and over and over. Um, And everyone just sort of said, oh, I have an Instapot. What they didn't know is that they didn't have an Instapot. Um, But I think the... I think that you you called out like they just did a really bad job of like fostering your van, their fans and taking their feedback and bringing new things to them that could be complimentary or new revision and things like that and, and just kind of stuck with the same old stuff the whole time.
3: This, yeah, the Swifties of the home appliances are, are the... Uh...
1: <laughs> well, it, it was literally... Yeah, the Swifties of the home appliances. <laughs> the NC. Um The what I was going to say was the distinction between product and brand for that is like the textbook use case. Like I, I could bet my life there will be an HBS case study that's like taught in business school of like the true definition of like when the company thinks that they're making a product, but really they're a brand. And I would say that in this day and age, when the barrier to entry for a product or a solution to a problem, which I hope all products are at some point, that isn't as important anymore, right? Because it used to be really hard to bring a product to market, to create it, to da-da-da. Now it's so much easier. And so all we have left, even after a brilliant idea, is your brand. And I, I feel like it's so silly to have to keep saying this, but obviously I have to keep saying this because I think that people don't like leaders and large organizations, maybe intellectually understand this, but they're not functioning in the way that they can understand how to truly become a brand and engage with their fans, engage with the people who are using the products, the people who, you know, just like that whole thing. It's just, it's not what you're selling. It's like, it's it's the other thing of what you're selling.
2: <laughs> I think this is really interesting, paralleled against another big bankruptcy this past year, which is Hunter, Hunter boots. And I've talked about a bit about this before, but I think what's interesting is Hunter chased it's similar to Instapod, actually, it chased demand, but demand isn't necessarily fandom. It could be bandwagoners, it could be uh it could be just people that want to be on trend or whatever. Um, it doesn't mean they're actually genuinely like your product. And they ended hmm. up overproducing. They went crazy. They went overproducing. They ended up on Woot. When you end up on Woot, your brand
3: is dead. <laughs> um, hey, I bought an iRobot vacuum in 2008 on Woot.com. I'll have you know. <laughs> and they got acquired by Amazon. Um, That's a success a, story.
2: <laughs> success story, yeah. uh, But my, my point in saying this is like I think – um fans aren't necessarily customers like it's not a one to one and so by focusing on white hot center like i think the whole hunter thing could have been completely avoided if they had chased that level of demand from actual fans as opposed to just chasing demand
3: yeah. I hate to do I hate to ask. Yeah. I don't I'm not familiar with Hunter. Can you give me like a two second Oh oh man
2: like the wellies? Yeah. Iconic welly uh, boot. The Princess I Diana see. wore them. They yeah. had a huge resurgence uh in popularity uh and of uh, maybe what five years ago in six years ago.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. a little more. Yeah. Maybe a little more, yeah.
2: Yeah. Got it. And, and yeah. then they eventually just got into every retailer everywhere and um, this is the other problem instaprot and hunter both suffered from another problem, which was they built too good of a product and no one needed it more than one of them um and so
1: that I agree with I think like. The whole thing, you know, Yeti, for example, like not the microphones, but-
2: <laughs> the crappy microphones that we spent the pre-show disparaging.
1: <laughs> we will never get sponsored by the Yeti microphone. Yeah, no, no it's never. over.
2: <laughs> Road on the other hand, let's go.
1: Yeah, that's okay. But anyway, like Yeti cups, you know, like those things last, but they have a real brand, right? So, like, right. they're a very good example of a brand that creates products that you're going to have for a really long time, but just creates lots of different types of products and is continuously growing, staying true to their fans, staying true to their world that they have created visually through all of their marketing and all of that. And so I I, I kind of, especially, especially like the sustainability person in me, hates the idea of like having to continuously like create yes. new things and buy new things. So like let's I do think that there's a way for brands to create quality things that last for a long time that will continue to have growth. I
2: mean you're looking at the, my Stanley Cup right behind me. <laughs>
3: He's that, that's, he calls it a Stanley Cup. That's the world's largest Stanley, Stanley thermos I've is, ever seen. It is, it's like a double. Actually, it's not my wife's yeah.
2: uncle gave this to me. He probably bought it in the seven. I have no idea when he bought this thing.
1: That's so cool. Yeah, it's like
2: old school, like been around forever, never going to die. This thing is never, I'm going to have this when I'm going to pass this on to my grandkids.
0: Wonderkind surveyed over 100 senior marketing leaders at leading B2C brands to get their outlook on the current state of marketing. The in-depth CMO State of the Union report explores how unique challenges like the pandemic, supply chain issues, and the death of the cookie have forced CMOs to throw out their playbooks and reassess their priorities. Read the report to uncover insights and opportunities for your brand. You will gain a better understanding of the current marketing landscape and how it is evolving, giving you a valuable edge to inform your future marketing, product, and communication strategies. Head to wonderkind.co forward slash future commerce to learn more.
3: Ingrid, can I ask you, what is your, is there like a a meta take on this, on the ability to turn a fan into a customer? Um, Are they, do you, are they, there's a Venn diagram for sure, but if you're just a fan and you're not a customer at a certain point in time, like, is there really a playbook to ever convert a fan to a customer?
1: Oh, I think so. I mean, I think it depends on the product, right? So like for the, the thing that is the easiest example that comes to mind is like a luxury product, right? So you grow up maybe in like a a family that like can't afford luxury things. Right. But you see that like Jordan sneaker or that mm-hmm. Hermes bag and you're a fan and you're like, wow, that is so beautiful. I love the story of this brand. I love the craftsmanship. I love Michael Jordan. Like all, all the things that like make you truly a fan, but not a buyer. Eventually when you, you know, turn to, 30 and you start making money and you start whatever like the rest of us you're going to absolutely become a customer and like mm-hmm. you're not even going to just buy like one or two pairs of jordans you're going to have a whole closet full of jordans because we you know we we try to make our inner child feel better about all the things so Wait, what you're saying
2: is find your customers jobs and then they can pay you money for your products wow
3: <laughs> It's funny, Ingrid, I don't know if you remember like six, seven, six years ago, maybe the first time you were that I spoke with you on the podcast. I think you had been on the Future Commerce podcast before with Brian. Oh, uh, yeah. but we we literally talked about that. It was the conspicuous consumption of something yeah. like a Jordan sneaker because I was trying to please my inner child. And that <laughs> that is remember that nice callback. One of the things that I, I did like about the season two is you know, there's a, uh, this idea of relationship comes up over and over. It's sort of like a recurring thing, but like the work love language conversation and the fusion of pop psychology and the naming of trends in pop psychology and how it's been applied to how we understand and relate to each other in work styles Mm -hmm. and how those things become conflated over time. But the way that you approach that, uh, was really clever um, because I think that a lot of folks take these models and they don't look at them as a means to understand uh, or create a a place or a conversation that allows people to safely communicate to each other that like how they prefer to work, how they prefer to interact with each other, but instead Mm -hmm. buckets people into a presumed pattern of behavior. And the yep. way that you break that down, I thought was really interesting. And in particular, kind of relating it back to all the things that everybody talks about all the time, like, oh, uh, DTC or ESG or like the things that I care about, the things I should care about, the things that are like trendy to care about. And how does that come to bear in sort of my work love language, I thought that was really clever. Or business um, astrology as orchid. Right, business
0: astrology.
3: <laughs> <laughs> We've paid for business astrology of future commerce. We did a uh, strength finder. We, we invent business
2: um, astrology. That's <laughs> true.
1: I, I I love that you pointed that out because this is the the infinite shelf, right? And the whole idea is that the whole the show talks about not just what we've been primarily primarily focused on which is consumers and brands and how do you grow and evolve and and turn fans into customers and all of that stuff is super relevant and i love talking about it but that's 50% of what we talk about the other 50% is how do we like on the inside of organizations. How do we become good leaders? There's like a whole episode about that. How do we use our, evaluate and like understand our own love languages and then evaluate other people's work, love languages and see how we can get things done. And so the, Philip, when we first were thinking about the idea of infinite shelf and how we wanted to talk about, you know, the content that we were developing, you had made this really beautiful analogy about how it's this like infinite shelf or like this table or this, where this we're having like a long dinner party and on one mm-hmm. side is the consumer and on the other side is the brands and the people that bring things to market, and it was such a Vi- perfect visual for like how we want to always focus the content of all of our seasons, regardless of what the overarching themes are. And, so much of season three, I think, did go into how do you actually like get through barriers internally? How do you talk to other people from other generations that maybe have different work languages or different expectations yeah. of what the workplace is and, and how to behave and, and get things done? Um, and, and yeah, so I, I love that you brought that part of it up because it's such a meaningful and important chunk of like, sure, you can philosophically understand how to build brands that people love and, and how to engage in culture, relevant conversations that then bring products and, and people to you. But organizationally, if you can't ship things, if you can't send good communications and all of that, like that's the other 50%. And so I, I love being able to have had some really meaningful conversations with Orchid about that.
3: Notwithstanding, I learned a lot about the two of you in that conversation, which is really interesting, like really cool to have the two of you be so transparent relating to each other. I also learned that penguins like to give each other rocks as gifts.
0: So That's like gift, gift giving is not about actually buying something. It's like this thing that you give to the other person because yeah. you were thinking about them. Right. And so it's actually more similar to penguins. Have <laughs> this, penguins have, do this activity called pebbling where they give each other rocks because they're like, I don't know, to build goodwill or something. So don't give me a rock, but memes are kind of a form of pebbling. Totally. So just, yeah, I, just, I think- just some clarity.
3: That was fun. It's called pebbling. I didn't know about it, but you can you can look it up. It's a thing. Um, and orchid uh, has so many weird facts that she likes to drop all the time. She
2: does. I, Orchid's a
3: fount of like
2: like information. Random She's like, yes. knowledge. It's like I want
3: orchid at my. She's trivia like a nights. goblin. She's yeah. like a goblin. She's like, look at this idea trinket that I have. <laughs> I found. I collected somewhere. Oh I'm my god! Give it to you now
1: so much fun having like creating content with her and just like having Mm -hmm. getting to have these conversations and we would just we would carry them on like over text with erica (laughs) like
0: our producer
1: (laughs) afterward beforehand we like sending each other memes like you know we'll have a a follow-up or something later with orchid but we um we're just like even products we're like we're like making orchid be a guinea pig for certain products i i think eventually at some point we have to figure out how to like broadcast a day in the life of Orchid's media consumption. <laughs> I would pay really good money to like have just a live stream of like all the things that Orchid is like looking at. We know it's just the headlines. Orchid.
2: We just want like a cam on Orchid's <laughs> eyes so we could just like watch everything <laughs> she's watching. I
1: mean, I think we just need to get the like, you know, what, like the hacker, we know we can do this. We can do this. Orchid, you, you we're going to hack into your systems and just, see whatever that whatever it's not
3: just it's not just orchid i mean i want to call out (laughs) producer erica here too and that um (laughs) i learned about colostrum way more than i ever wanted Mm. to uh this season through (laughs) through through the end i I actually talked with the colostrum brand one time i (laughs) was doing some
2: consulting with (laughs) them that's uh
1: the actual colostrum like the aroma what's it called erica aroma (laughs) um oh my god yeah that's one of the very very long text conversations we've had but it's a fascinating thing and just the wellness in general i keep i keep uh threatening to do this but we need to have like a full season on like wellness brands and products and, and like so. where we just like review stuff because like, Ooh. man,
3: that... that's my, you know, that's my jam. All
1: of our jams, Philip. Six, like, and you... It's all
3: of our jam. But I like I spent six years building a direct to consumer wellness brand. That was where I started in DTC. I didn't know that. That's a whole other thing. I'm just going to do a whole episode on Suja by itself. So, you know, <laughs> Brian, Brian, we know what your regimen is. Like, we, oh, yeah. no one needs to ask. It, the Suja is offset by the $1.50 Costco hot dog. That, I, don't like, eat they, hot, those two I don't things. Know, no, I'm like, gluten free. I mean, each other out.
2: I don't eat <laughs> the hot dogs at Costco or the pizza, even though I really <laughs> wish that I could. I I don't do gluten.
3: <laughs> Brian, you what's your colostrum intake like these days? That's the question. <laughs> it's a it's a, a zero at the moment. <laughs> <a> zero.
2: Yep.
1: <laughs> Wait. So I I have to ask you guys the mm. total pivot from colostrum. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Everyone, yeah. But the Episode that I think like lived on before and after all of the episodes. I think you know where I'm going with this, which was the growth versus um profit conversation. Yeah. It just it does weave its way in or like weasel its way into everything because it's just so embedded. What are your takes on the growth versus are, are you team profit? Are you team growth? Can you do both at the same time? Like I'm, I'm so curious what you thought.
3: Um, Brian, Brian, <laughs> I, as the chief revenue officer of future commerce i'd like to hear what you say first uh i,
2: I love growth when operations makes it profitable <laughs> um no i think i think i don't really like the show friends i'm more of a seinfeld guy but i thought that friends reference about the 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 growth and profitability are like two legs of a tight pair of pants <laughs> Uh That was a great reference. um I think they're you know you have to have both. I am unfortunately in the camp of yeah, you gotta make money, but you gotta ride the train when it's there like I think that was a really good point actually, ingrid that you made, which was like when the growth train's happening don't slow it down. Like you got to ride that train until, (laughs) until it's time to ride the next, until it's time to ride the profitability train. (laughs) I feel like,
3: (laughs) yes, please go, please ride it. I have, I, I, it's funny because I'm realizing something about myself and this is the sort of the, the internet induced ADD of it all is I don't remember that episode, but I do remember a conversation about the Zuck, elon cage match which means i definitely listened to this episode (laughs) but that was not the takeaway that i had and i don't think i i had a formed well-formed opinion about it um i here's my perma take on growth and profitability um i think to have a brand to have a brand a brand is not design and it's not a logo and it's not fonts and colors a brand is something that has endured and stood the test of time, and that means many market cycles, and that mm-hmm. means longevity, and it's something that has, despite all the odds, somehow found a way to persist. I don't think you can do that without profitability. So my my sense is, like the longer that you exist, for, for instance, a number of, you may not think of a brand as the local pizza store, but what is the pizza store you know, that's the local uh, haven. It's the one that says established 1918. It's the one that says established, you know, it's 100 years in business. It's the grocery store. Those can be brands too. And I think having having a reputation is aligned and a reputation sort of is part of brand. I think that is where I come down on is that it actually takes quite a long time to build that. It takes a lot of persistence. So I don't know. I think maybe I'm in the profitability camp.
1: It's funny actually, because as you were working through it, mm. I truly, everything that you were saying was, was like, Oh, he's going to say growth. <laughs> and then he <you> said profitability <laughs> after that. So like the yeah. same way that you just rationalized how profitability is your like end all train yeah. answer. I literally thought that you were going to say growth for those same exact reasons.
3: I think growth and profitability aren't necessarily cage match enemies. I think they have to be they coexist and they're both yeah. they're they're two sides of the same coin, which is like maybe there's seasons for both and there's yeah. place for both.
1: That's where um, I clean and yang. That's it, what you kind of oh. said
2: about the pants, right? I mean, or is that that was an orchid? Orchid was re- responding to you about that, I believe.
3: <laughs> was that a friend's reference? I don't get that. I
2: don't it was. Get that yeah. It okay. was a friend's reference. I didn't get it yeah. either. I don't watch Friends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think you missed very much.
0: <laughs> Sorry.
1: Hot take. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, yeah, I think it's the yin and yang of it. I, I think the one takeaway that I have. That would be my advice to myself, to other leaders in retail, is to understand where you are in that pendulum and Mm -hmm. and act accordingly and have your KPIs adjust accordingly, right? Because I'm firmly in the mindset that they're yin and yang, but they are black and white and they're, they complement each other, but they're different and they have different times and they have different seasons and they have different ways of determining success. And I think you start getting into trouble when the marketing team thinks you're in growth and finance and sales thinks that you're in profitability. Uh. And, and that's where the, the rub starts to happen. And I think this is up to all of like the leadership teams like especially from the CEO mm-hmm. down to be really clear about which season a brand or a product or conglomerate is is in
3: the bigger the corporation um i think the the less accountability and the worse communication uh tends to happen because <laughs> being really definitive and being wrong can end your job or your career like being very clear and having high conviction and being wrong isn't celebrated as like well we we swung hard it yeah. it means that you you failed and failure can't really be tolerated especially catastrophic ones right um and that's where i see a lot of unfortunately like a lot of people who just it's there's an insurance policy taken out against having poor organizational communication like let's be really guarded in the way that we're leading the same. Yes, we're in growth mode. Yes. Okay, so that means that we're going to like sacrifice some profit as we spend our way into acquisition. No, 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 we're not going to do that either. Like we're going to do both. No, you can't do both. You can't. And, and that's where I, I have a real problem with it. I think that the corporation as a as an entity is not set up to is, the larger that it gets is, is not set up to demand accountability and clear direction that it does become a zero sum game. I don't know.
1: You said something really important that I think I want to just like reiterate here is being clear on what your goals are also leaves you completely vulnerable to not achieving those goals Mm -hmm. and it being really clear. And that accountability and responsibility Mm -hmm. for setting a goal and not meeting it is what keeps most senior leaders up at night. And I think that's the reason why they know they know that we need clear direction and clear leadership and clear thoughts. And I think the the real leaders that set that, and I, I you know, as 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 maybe problematic in a lot of ways, like Jeff Bezos, for example, can can be, I do think that he had the audacity to be one of those leaders that set really clear goals and hit that most of the time. And then if didn't if he didn't, he'd fail and people would talk about it for a day or two and then move on. Cause he'd be on to the next five things that he's doing well. And, and I think that like, a, I think Steve Jobs is another good example of a leader who wasn't afraid to like swing from the fences, be That's wrong. Right. But, like the one thing that you do that, that is amazing. This thing, yeah, this thing yeah. like is, is going to actually be your legacy.
2: I do think that, Perhaps one of the reasons why profitability and growth seem at odds with each other often is because they are set as the goals. And this actually, I would argue, is, is perhaps part of the problem. For a lasting brand are about meeting customers expectations and problems and things that are actually unrelated to profitability or growth. I would argue that often if you put a specific growth target, what's your strategy? Well, we need to grow by 20% next year. Like that's not a strategy. That's just like some random target that, you know, that, 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 that has nothing to do with, with actually like Anything related to your product or your customers, or anything that's better. So actually, profitability and growth are often symptoms of the way that you build and go to market. And yes, you do have to, you know, be, you do have to be profitable. You have to find ways to add, add new customers. I'm not saying that's not true, and I'm not saying what? that we shouldn't have KPIs around them. But if they are your top line goals, that's when you start to see businesses get into trouble. Like, oh. um, you chase profitability. Guess what happens? you tick off a bunch of your customers or you 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 know cut out markets or you cause other problems if you set growth as your goal guess what happens you <laughs> die as a business or you, you end up having to sacrifice things that you wouldn't normally sacrifice like your employees
3: when you get to a certain scale Brian there's inertia though that even despite your many successive failures you can continue to still have revenue yeah sure. and that's where that's where i think the, the Rubber Meets the Road. By the way, that whole episode was about DTC profitability and DTC growth. And that's a whole other ball of wax, which yeah. I think some of us have more familiarity than others. But I I want to ask you, Ingrid, how many times do you think that you, in this season, mentioned the CMO, the CFO, and the CEO by title?
1: Oh, my gosh. Maybe once each Mm. Would be my guess.
3: The the CMO had zero mentions. The CFO had zero mentions. The CEO was mentioned like eleven times across mm. of all of season three, and I think that's really telling that at the end of the day, there is a very clear leader who has to own the success or failure as the leader of the executive team. Yeah, but. To rely solely on the CEO as the person who sets the tone and tenor, sets the goals, and mobilizes the team to do the vision, I think is a little bit of a like. At the end, they're accountable, but they're not fully responsible for executing.
1: No, no, I think that's a that's a really right. fair point. I I think the reason why, and and that's I wouldn't I didn't even know. I, I thought it would right. have been even, but sure, you would
3: have, you would think right, right.
1: Um, but it's, it's a really interesting call out. So now I'm sort of in real time reflecting on why I think that mm-hmm. um, I would say that I would hope that the CEO doesn't ever come to a directive or a strategy or a goal without having consulted and gotten the yes. Information from the CMO, from the CFO, from the CTO, from the rest of the C suite, um, and frankly, other parts of the organization as well, not just the leadership team. But so the reason why I, in hindsight, Think that I focus so heavily on saying CEO, CEO is because I don't ever assume that the CEO is making these like unilateral decisions. Everything is done through advisory and and recommendations from the subject matter experts of all the different functions. But ultimately, yeah, I at the same time, accountability is paramount. And at the end of the day, the person that's holding the bag. Is the CEO, and we have to hold people accountable.
3: I think the CFO and the CMO are also much more highly volatile positions that have a lot higher turnover than the CEO, which mm-hmm. is another insurance policy problem, right? <laughs> is is the, yeah. the cover of bad leadership in a particular part of the org doesn't totally. flow upwards and only flows downward.
1: Totally. Yeah. I think that's a problem with like having shareholders and the whole system of, of all of the like board of directors and how the CEO. <laughs> yeah. is, like, I mean, come on. There's like, a whole episode about how stupid that whole setup is
3: on the balance of all of the roles, uh, at the various organizations that you've worked at. Like, do you think, uh, you've had stellar, like do you had more stellar leadership or great leadership or is it a mixed bag? What's, what have you seen more of? And how does that, (laughs) how does that color this perspective of the journey you've been on for season three?
1: (laughs) I can tell you that it's been definitely a mixed bag, but the bag is like very eerie. I've either had really excellent leadership that I still think about on a regular basis. Like what would this person do? What have they said before? What have I heard them say? How have they approached decisions? How have they approached communicating to the organization? Like all of those things. I've seen really stellar, exemplary CEOs and C-suite employees. And on the other hand, I'm like, who the fuck hired these clowns
0: <laughs> like, how, is it,
1: how? how is it even possible and it's like it, and it's truly like the the delta between the really extremely amazing and still to this day inspiring to me and the how how of it all yeah <laughs> um mm-hmm. is is really what it, there's very little like in between like the in-between is always in the, like the one level below, like the VPs and directors, there's like a mixed bag of those characters, but the C level is always like, you're either a rock star and like, you're going to do amazing things for amazing brands or how in the world did you even,
3: how did did you even get here?
1: How did you white male yourself into this?
3: (laughs) (laughs) They're usually white males. That's why.
1: (laughs) (laughs) but there's also been some really great white males that are that fall into the inspirational leadership thing too.
3: I'm sure. Yeah.
2: Is there a correlation at all between organizations that you were at that were successful as businesses and the leadership that was there?
1: Oh, big time. Yeah, you saw the difference for sure. Um Interesting. Yeah, it's you do like and, and you see there there could be like shorter periods of, oh, like they're getting away with. I don't know how they're this dumb or, or inept, but they're doing well. <laughs> but that's that's like a blip. It's not usually like the consistent. Sure. And that kind of goes back to Philip's point about like the longevity and like really at the end of the day, it's it's the sum of a much longer period of time. And and I think at the end of the day, you, you do see that.
3: Ken, yeah. w- we've told you some of our favorite season highlights. What are some of yours?
1: I mean, I really loved the leadership conversation. Um, Just thinking about who we are as leaders, the types of leaders that we like gravitate toward, the ones that we remember, how we, as our generation, like we're both elder millennial leaders and um, hope that we are forming a different work environment, a different employee employer relationship. Um, but also still having clear boundaries of like getting things done and holding people accountable. Um, so I really loved the leadership conversation and then, yeah, of course I think all of the cultural brand development to like all of those, it's not like one, it's not limited to one episode. It kind of like threads its way through everything was, a podcast that I myself want to listen to. And that's always been my goal with, with infinite shelf is Mm -hmm. to create a podcast that I myself want to tune into, um, with the, you know, almost 15 years of, of commerce experience. Like I don't, I don't need a how to, or a 10 things to, to do before 9.00 AM. Like no thing. Like I appreciate, I'm glad that that content exists, but like, I'm not the audience for that. I'm the audience for this kind of conversational, in the trenches Mm -hmm. new insights reframing things highlighting things that in a way that maybe i hadn't thought of myself like that that is what i think i'm the most proud of with with season three all of our seasons but particularly with this season having weaved that in has been really great
3: so cool do you think you've achieved the ryan seacrest uh aspirations at this point or (laughs) Is there more left <laughs> in you? Hardest working man in showbiz, I think.
1: You Really? I mean, Ryan Seacrest is incredible. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think I will ever. I will have a go up to up. I <laughs> ever get the Seacrest out dumb. Um, but I, I appreciate him. And I appreciate you guys. This has no. been a really, really fun Stop. recap. I'm so glad that we got to reminisce and look forward to future conversations. Uh,
3: and Ingrid oh yeah. says... We'll make this like 25, 30 minutes, right?
1: I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's because I love talking to you guys. Oh, we do Uh, too. Vice versa. Well, if you haven't heard season three, tune in. Um, It was really fun. And hopefully, we'll check you on the flip side.
3: Yeah. Yeah.